All right, it's my great pleasure to be here. I'm just so delighted. And uh, I, if I could ask you to turn in your scripture, whether under the glow or actual hard copy. <laughs> Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 29. The word of the Lord. Jesus went on from there, that is, the Tyre and Sidon region. And he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain, and he sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion. And that word compassion, very unique word, splagnizomai uh, in the Greek, means my guts are turning. I am disturbed. And it is only used ever of Jesus or of the Lord uh, the Father himself. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days. Three days is an amazing number throughout Scripture, all through the Old Testament. We had our confession of faith earlier, rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And the time stamps all the way through the Old Testament of talking about great and wonderful things that occurred after three days. Jesus uses that here. Three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. Again, a magnificent number of perfection and completion. Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Heavenly Father, bless us this day. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O my Lord, my Rock, and my Redeemer. The inspiration of Scripture, the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, not only pertains to the words and the content of the Scripture, but even to the very way it's pieced together. How it's arranged. And we'll examine one such arrangement for our worship today. If you've not heard, uh, there's a word chiasm or chiasmus. The first letter of chi, that word is chi, the Greek word for x, or that's used as an x. And we take one side of that, chiasm, and the literature can be arranged in that x fashion. A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And the arrangement tells us a story. And the whole of the book of Matthew, in its entirety, is one of these 
chiasms. And within the pages of the literature are also other chiasms. And we're going to look at one of those chiasms that holds the, the whole book together. Throughout the Bible, mountains are a primary feature of the story of redemption. And we find in Matthew a majestic picture of discipleship according to the stories of the mountains that are in a chiastic fashion. I once read of a man who asked, why do people climb mountains? He was asked, <coughs> excuse me, and his answer is this, I can't imagine why. Maybe it's so that when they attain the summit, they can let the wind blow through the holes in their head. But, let me tell you, the Bible itself is built around this theme of mountains. The Bible begins on a mountain in Eden. We know of that from the book of Ezekiel. Your garden on your holy mountain. And Genesis itself records that rivers flow out of Eden, suggesting there are headwaters uh, which are up in mountains. In the book of Revelation, it ends almost when the, the John sees the holy city coming down from heaven and resting on a mountain. Other great mountain stories, you have Noah, the ark, resting upon a mountain. Abraham goes up a mountain to where he sacrifices or is about to sacrifice Isaac. God appears to Moses from the burning bush and tells him, Horeb, the mountain of God, that's where we, we will meet. And that upon Sinai, it's on si Mount Sinai where Moses meets with God. Elijah flees to that mountain of Horeb, and that's where he meets God. And in Matthew, like I said, a very important theme. And there are seven mountain, excuse me, <clears throat> stories they are arranged in that chiastic fashion that I explained. And the first mountain and mountain number seven have some correspondence. Two and six, three and five, and then you get the number one. The mountains of Matthew are, first of all, the mountain of temptation where Satan offers dominion. Look at all this, all these kingdoms. I'll give you authority over all these if you worship me. The second mountain is the mountain of the Beatitudes. And Jesus went up on the mountain and sat and began to teach. Then we have a third reference of a mountain. Uh, Jesus went up the mountain alone to pray. Matthew 14, 23. We also have this, what we read. Jesus went up on the mountain where we have the feeding of the multitude. The next mountain episode is that of the mountain of transfiguration. And again, in that whole story, there's this reference to Jesus being alone with the disciples. Then we have the next is the mountain of olives, where there's more preaching and teaching. And then the final mountain episode is that of the commission, where Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me. The first mountain is a scene where Satan seeks to, attempt, to tempt Jesus, Jesus by offering him world dominion if Jesus would simply bow down to him. It reads, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and Satan then said, all these things I'll give to you if you fall down and worship me. 
Jesus responds, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God only and serve him only. The last mountain, the seventh mountain in the gospel, is where Jesus proclaims that he has been given universal dominion. All the kingdoms belong to him in heaven and earth, and he sends the disciples out to extend that by making disciples of others. When the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and they saw him, they worshipped him, some were doubtful. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Mountain episode 2 and episode 6 are both scenes of preaching and teaching. The second is the Sermon on the Mount, where legalism and hypocrisy are confronted, and the great principles of kingdom discipleship are given. That's Matthew 5 through 7. The sixth mountain is the Olivet Discourse, where the future events are prophesied by Jesus, where he warns of great distress to come and encourages uh, the disciples regarding the great hope for the fulfillment of all those things. And Jesus states that when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's found in Matthew 24 and 25. The Sermon on the Mount, remember, begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, the Olivet Discourse is preceded by the eight woes. Woe unto you and the curses that come with that. So there's that literary correspondence. And remember back in the Old Testament with Moses when half of the tribes were put on one mountain, the other half on the other mountain, and they would read out the covenant, they would read out the blessings, and they would read out the curses. And here it's happening in Matthew. The third corresponding set of mountains are the uh, three and five, which emphasize the unique aloneness of Jesus. Approaching the third mountain, Jesus sent everyone away and went up by himself to pray, Matthew 14, 23. On the fifth mountain, the mountain of transfiguration, it is said that when the disciples, when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And those words are common in, in both the texts. Both stories focus on the aloneness and aloneness of or with Jesus is the emphasis. And then the central mountain episode, what we read, is that of the feeding of the 4,000. And that feeding, as I mentioned, was a miracle of Jesus after the three days. And everyone having enough to satisfy all of their hunger. As with the manna, and there were baskets left over, unlike the manna. And I draw attention to the action of Jesus giving the food to his disciples to distribute among the people. And this is a picture of our participation in the miraculous ministry of service that we have with the Lord. So in those mountain patterns, there's something for us to consider as we want to be a disciple of Jesus. That word disciple, mathetes, is used only in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. And it's 72 times alone in the Gospel of Matthew. And it is that focus on discipleship that these mountains build for us. 
because there is a foundation and a pathway to come to the top where it is service in the work of the Lord. And so those four aspects in the mountain climbing that we need to know, number one, first of all, it's our being. Then, secondly, it's our feeding. Third is our meeting. And then, fourth, our participating. And all these four go together. All of Matthew, everything that's said in that gospel, hang underneath this mountain of stories. There's a first aspect of being a disciple, and a next, and a next, and a finally an outcome. So first of all, it's our being. That is the nature of who we are. Are we positioned in Adam, or are we positioned in Christ? Who has authority in our lives? The temptation of Jesus far exceeded the garden failure. He was in a wilderness, not a garden. Our Lord was famished from 40 days of fast and not surrounded by food as Adam and Eve were. He was alone. Adam and Eve were together. And he was tested three times, not just the once. And each time Jesus refutes the tempter with clear, accurate scripture. Not so in the garden story where the idea of food, that is the lust of flesh, or the idea of life and death, the pride of life, or worshiping God as demonstrated by obedience and faithfulness that is opposed to the lust of the eyes as he was tempted. See everything, I can give you all of that power. I can let you have authority in all of these things. We know from Scripture that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And it is in the obedience of Christ, succeeding where Adam failed, that that constitutes for us a righteous status in the eyes of the Lord if our lives are transformed so that we are now in Christ and no longer in Adam. That is accomplished by being born again, regeneration, being supernaturally taken out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light and that is the necessary first operation of God. Out of regeneration flows all the rest of the divine graces. Behold, we are new creations. And that's the question. Some of the hymns that we sang today called that question about our fidelity and our faith to Christ and our, our identity with him. Are you a new creation? Are old things passing away? Behold, are all things becoming new? Our being. We're not just people who go to church as opposed to people who don't go to church. We're not merely people who believe in a supernatural God and believe as we confess through the Nicene Creed all of those elements. We're, not, we're people who are transformed by that information. We understand that these things happened in space and time and they are real. That God created the heavens and the earth. That God sent his son 
to this world, to be born of a virgin, to become a man, to live a life as an Adam and become the new Adam by his total faithfulness and obedience to the Father and by rejecting the temptations of the lust of the eyes and the lust of life and the pride of life. Being. And it's the greatest question in the world. It is the greatest question that we will ever answer in our world. Whose are you? Whose are you? And it's worth reflecting on. Oh, we get into the process of our worship cycles and our coming to church and our fellowshipping with believers and our service even in the work of the Lord. But it's worth reflecting on, and many times the Bible calls us back to remember. Remember those beginning days. Remember those moments in our lives. Do you remember? Do you remember when you came to faith? Do you remember that day, that hour, that season in life where the lights came on? I believe in Jesus. I believe what Jesus had to say. I believe, Heavenly Father, that you have forgiven me, a sinner, far above and way beyond anything that I deserve. My being matters, and we do well to remember. If you don't remember, you need to have a memory created. Second topic is that of feeding, feeding on the Word with the Lord. You cannot know Jesus if you're not reading and studying the Bible, taking it in. That is his message. The message from heaven, from another word. My theology professor, as we studied through Scripture and we got to the issue of the inspiration of Scripture, he entitled his lectures, A Word from Another World. And indeed it is. And sometimes it's deep and mysterious and difficult to understand, Yet, over time, we should be more and more understanding and made alive because it's the Word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the Word that is breathed out by God and alone is profitable, alone is able. That word, able, dunamis, the dynamite word, it has the power to teach and to reprove and to correct and to train. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Religion, not begun by being born again, and not nourished by feeding upon the word, is merely legalism. That is, just practicing certain things and doing certain things as to, so as to rather justify ourselves, which was like the Pharisees. Or it's ritualism. Practicing and being satisfied with the routine of outward worship and service. And we can all fall into that. Perhaps knowing our being is found in Christ and yet becoming methodic and cold and indifferent to the reality of the excitement that we live every day. His blessings are new every morning. The Sermon on the Mount in many ways, is simply this. Don't be like them. The Olivet Discourse, though, is the woes clearly addressed to people of a pretend faith. 
I recommend to all of us, perhaps you already do this, get a Bible reading in a year. Something that gives you a portion each day. The average person reads 200 to 250 words a minute. There are a little over 775,000 words in the Bible. And so it takes about 10 to 15 minutes of reading a day to read through the whole Bible. And most will give you an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, a psalm, and some proverbs. Can you imagine... I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand, but have you read the whole Bible? So much of it remains deep and mysterious. It's hard to read through. It's hard to read some of those prophetic sermons of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Oh, my goodness, when we come to Leviticus. But after 20 years of reading, and I'm not talking about studying, just talking about the reading, begin to understand. In Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimonies of the Lord, and so on. We begin to be enriched by the Word of God. And we hide that Word in our hearts. The third subject that we find in that mountain chiasm, the first being authority, the second being teaching. The third is that of meeting. Meeting alone with Jesus. The focus word in these stories of those two mountain episodes, Jesus went up on the mountain alone to pray to his heavenly Father. And then on the mountain of transfiguration, we have Peter and John there all of a sudden the glory of the Lord was shining in the voice from heaven, this is my son. Listen to him. And Moses and Elijah were there in that story. And then Peter's going, maybe we should get an altar. <laughs> He's cut short. But all of a sudden, as suddenly as it came, it suddenly went. And the notation in the Scripture is that they were Jesus was alone with them. This is about prayer. This is about the example that Jesus shows us to go up on the mountain alone to pray and then with the disciples alone with Jesus. And then the next story that follows once they come down off the mountain is the, the demon-possessed child that throws himself into the fire and we've done everything we can. And Jesus said, this one can only happen by prayer. We need to meet with God. God meets us. God comes to us. But why don't people spend alone time with the Lord? Why don't people pray? An atheist owned a rowdy bar next to a church, and that church prayed earnestly that God would somehow do away with the bar. It ruined lives. It was boisterous. It sometimes encroached on their worship and sometimes encroached on their services and one day, the bar was struck by lightning, and it burned to the ground. The atheists sued the church. But the church said, not our responsibility. And the judge said, this is the strangest case I've ever seen. 
An atheist who believes in answered prayer from the Almighty who doesn't exist, and a church who takes no responsibility for the prayer. Oh, so often, dear children, we're like this. We don't pray because we're afraid we don't do it right. Or we, we avoid prayer. It's unnatural to pray. Do you understand that? It's unnatural, especially when we're alone. You know what? When we're in a group, oh, everybody's saying something, and it's going around a circle, and it comes my time, and I'm motivated to say something, and so we pray. But being alone is much more difficult. So much more difficult to pray even beyond a few short sentences when we're alone. And yet, this is our Heavenly Father who says, come boldly into my presence. And throughout all of Scripture, we have the encouragements and the commandments to pray. And praying alone is maybe one of the biggest challenges we have. We also sometimes believe God's not listening. Or he wants me to pray, but, you know, nothing changes. We don't believe that he has the power. Or then that sad place of we believe, perhaps, that God is ignoring us. Prayer is hard work. It is. There's no question. Praying alone is even the hardest work there may be. But we get to talk to God. When we work, <clears throat> we are limited by all that makes us human. When we pray, God works, and he has no limits but his own character, power, and glory. Draw near to me. I will draw near, me, near to you. So let me suggest a very simple means by which to pray in order to develop and that culture and the ability even within your own lives to pray it's based on the word ACTS. Perhaps you've heard that. It's an acronym. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That is pleading earnestly for something. Adoration. Oh, Lord, I, you are beautiful. You are holy. You are lovely. Whatever you can think of and you can find Scripture that will substitute words you cannot think of for words that can come from your heart and your spirit to adore confession. Pastor showed us what confession is, read from the Scripture what it's about, gave us the moments to confess. I've often wondered why in the worship service, confession of our own personal sin in those few quiet moments is the shortest period of time we spend in any service. Oh, my goodness understanding what sin is, understanding its complexity and its nature and how it clings to us and holds us back, we can confess. And then we can be thankful. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, give thanks unto the Lord. And then asking. He will not give us a if we ask for bread. He will not give us a serpent asking for water. Whatsoever you ask of me, I will provide. Now, 
I can think of a lot of things that I'd like to have. So I'll understand this, that as God works in your heart and spirit to pray his mind, then these things come together. But so often our thoughts are not his thoughts and our ways are not his ways. But I'll tell you something here. I could ask for a blue moon and to win the lottery and for all kinds of things. And they may, they're all wrong. But if I'm in genuine prayer and I know the presence of the Lord with me in that time, it doesn't matter. And that is the goal of prayer. Not to send up a quick one or shoot up, I need help, or an SOS, Lord. It is to be with God. And that's what the Scriptures provide for us. It says we get to be with God. We get to be before his holy presence. We get to be in his holy throne room. We get to feel and sense and know that we are standing or kneeling in the very presence of the Almighty. That is the greatest answer to any prayer that we might have. And it's our blessing. And it's promised to us. So use acts, adore, confess, thank, and plead earnestly. Find a psalm or two that you can memorize. Pray the psalm. Use that to meditate. Use the Word of God to meditate. In his law, he does meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by many uh, rivers of waters. And it will bear fruit when it's supposed to, and its leaf will not wither. That's the promise we have from God. Or compose your own. You ever try to write a poem that doesn't include roses are red? <laughs> I have. I'm not very good at it, but I've got a few places. I've got a little book, and every once in a while, I'll write down. My wife unbelievable as far as being able to be artistic and literary. And she will often read to me those poems that she composes. But if you can write your own, it somewhat becomes kind of a journal, a spiritual journal of study for you to remember and put a date on it. Remember back here when I asked the Lord for these things and I wrote down these words that were on my heart and oh my goodness, I got my answer. I got, I, oh, it's been six months. It's been two years. Here's my answer. It, it has come. Then we are built up in prayer. Then, as we practice prayer, alone, with the Word, using our words, we can begin to build that stamina that ability to stay with it and understand we're in a sacred place. And guess what? You don't have to take your shoes off to come to the holy mountain. You don't have to have somebody else represent you in the temple on the mountain of God's holy place in His temple, we have access through Jesus Christ. The fourth is that of 
distributing, being, reading, praying, distributing. Jesus performed the miracle after he had healed so many people. They were in awe. Performs the miracle of the bread using the seven loaves after the three days. I've mentioned the significance of those numbers. But he gives it to the disciples to hand out the bread of life. There's no greater joy in the life of a believer than that of distributing the bread of life to someone and that person receives the gift of eternal life. We're all to be fruit bearers. We're all to be those who, who plant, who water, or who reap. And there is no greater joy than to have children of the faith just recall how many times Paul, as he's addressing the churches someplace, and he says, you are my children. In your prayer times, you can pray, Lord, give me this blessing. Open my mind to understand your word so that I can present to somebody the gospel of Jesus Christ by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works so that no one can boast. Just that one verse is the gospel. But God, being rich in mercy, makes us alive. There are, there are so many wonderful plans that we can use as a template to guide us in that. But you want that grace to be part of your life in order for you to bear fruit in this world. Are you clear about which kingdom has dominion in your life? Are you diligent to know Christ by the reading and the feeding and His Word? Are you ascending in life, in a life of prayerful pursuit, devotion to Christ? Are you distributing the bread of life? Being a disciple being a member of a church, being a child of the King, being born again, and our knowledge of Christ is much like climbing a mountain. When you're at the bottom, when you begin, when your being is transformed, you don't see much, you only see a little. The mountain itself, it appears to be not even as high as it really is. It looms right in front of you, but our perspective is limited because we're at the base. We've only just begun. And it's conf we're confined in a little valley and we discover scarcely anything, but we can maybe see a rippling brook and as they descend out of the uh, mountain down to the, to the foot. But climbing up to that first knoll, then the valley lengthens and it widens beneath our feet. And as we go higher, you can see the country for four or five miles. The horizon extends farther outward, and we begin to see how things piece together, and we're delighted with this widening prospect and climb more. Mount higher, and the scene enlarges till at last you are on that summit, and you look 
north and south and east and west, and you see almost all that lies before you. And far away, it's a distant forest. Hundreds of miles away, there's the sea and, and another great shining river, a far distant town, all the things that please and delight you. And you say, I could not have imagined that so much could be seen from being up so high. It's breathtaking. It's amazing. It's unimaginably beautiful. And the Christian life is of that same order. When we first believe in Christ, we see and know but little of Him. But as the higher we climb through our reading and our prayer, the more we discover His excellencies and His beauty. But who has ever gained, in fact, the summit? Who has known all the heights and the depths of the love of Christ which passes knowledge? But I'll remind you of this. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And I say to all of you, climb. Climb. Heavenly Father, bless your word among us today to encourage, to exhort, to teach, to challenge, to reprove. Even, yea, Lord, to make alive. You are faithful. Your word is powerful. It is the sword. It is the fire. It is the hammer. So bless us this day. By your word, we ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen.